Mostly I'm trying to answer the question, how do different mixtures of stressors or environmental contaminants impact the things living in rivers? So that's sort of the bulk of the research that I try to answer now. But I also like to do a lot of outreach, whether it's working with school groups or community group, undergraduate students and more, both in terms of educating them on waste literacy and the kinds of research that I do, as well as actually working with communities to do research within communities where we, we collect data together, we build these protocols together, and then we talk about the results of the data that we found. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have our Rachel Giles. She's an aquatic ecologist. She has a PhD, no, she's a PhD candidate at University of Toronto. And we're going to talk about uh, environmental contaminants such as microplastics in aquatic systems. So, Rachel, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, look, tell me a bit about your background and then the current research that you're doing. So, I am, as you said, I'm an aquatic ecology researcher, and currently I study pollution in rivers. Mostly, I'm trying to answer the question, how do different mixtures of stressors or environmental contaminants impact the things living in rivers? So that's sort of the the bulk of the research that I try to answer now. But I also like to do a lot of outreach, whether it's working with school groups or community groups, undergraduate students and more, both in terms of educating them on waste literacy and the kinds of research that I do, as well as actually working with communities to do research within communities where we we collect data together, we build these uh, protocols together, and then we we talk about the results of the data that we found. So a little bit of research and also lots of outreach and education as well. But what does that mean? What are you educating? That can look like lots of different things. So for example, I'm part of a group called the University of Toronto Trash Team. I'm a university student. I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto. And so on one hand, I do research as as a PhD student, but we've also got this sort of outreach branch of our lab. And it kind of operates like a nonprofit organization whose main goals are to increase waste literacy and decrease plastic pollution in our environment. And so when we talk about education, one of the things that I've done with the University of Toronto trash team was to develop these school lesson plans for grade five students. So we come in as the U of T trash team, we go to a grade five classroom and we have these sort of four lessons that build upon each other. First, learning about what is plastic? Where does it come from? Uh, what is plastic in you know our world and our everyday life? Why is plastic a problem? Why has it become a problem? through to how does plastic end up in our environment and then we end on a lesson on solutions with the students actually thinking about and coming up with their own solutions to plastic pollution so that's one example of the sort of educational work that i do but it also can look like visits to you know a community group or the the toronto public library teaching as a teaching assistant in the university 
uh, but definitely working within the the schools is a lot. Well, tell me about the microplastics component of your research. What's that about? So I study microplastics in combination with other kinds of stressors. And so I do this in sort of two main places or systems. One is my home here in Toronto, Canada, and the other is in Vietnam. So here in Toronto is where I study microplastics. I want to understand how one specific kind of microplastics, which are called, I call tire dust or tire wear particles. And I'm trying to understand how they're impacting things that live in one of the rivers here in Toronto called the Humber River. It's one of our most urban rivers. There's two main rivers that come through sort of the center of Toronto and cut it in half. And it's one of those. And uh, it's actually historically a trade route for some of the indigenous populations that have lived here and continue to live here in Toronto. And so with these microplastics, we know that car tires are made of rubber, synthetic rubber, and that through these sort of abrasion processes, the tire rubber get almost rubbed off and ends up on the road. And then here in, again in southern Ontario, we've got lots of snow. And when the snow all melts in the spring, we have this big rush of the tire wear particles, along with any sorts of other contaminants that are flushed into the river. And so actually one of the things we use a lot here in southern Ontario is salt to de-ice our sidewalks and our roads and our parking lots. And so tire wear particles and salt, they all sort of rush into the stream in the springtime when we have this big melt. And so part of my research looks at trying to understand how that spring melt or these flush events change the, the amount of tire wear particles we see in the Humber River and also understanding how that changes as we move from these more urbanized areas where we've got lots of roads as we sort of move out into the suburbs and then eventually into more rural areas close to the headwaters of this river where the rivers start. Well, what's, what percentage of the uh, microplastics in the river come from tires? before and after or during a flush? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what we're finding is that in our, what I'm finding from this research is that in our urban areas, the rubber represents over 50% of the particles that we're finding, where we have about 200 particles, at least 100 to about 200 of those are going to be tire wear particles. Versus if you look out in the more rural areas, we might have something like five, six, seven, or eight microplastics in the entire sample, and one or none of those are rubber. So we do see this really big pattern in the kinds of microplastics as we start in the city and move out to these more sort of suburban or rural areas. But again, in a non-flush time, what percentage Mm. of the contaminants are tires? So is the 50% when things are very active and melting, or is that the baseline that goes up from there? That's a great question. So one of the things that we weren't able to do during our field season was actually capture that flush event. So in an ideal winter for this study, we'd have snow that comes on the ground around December, January, stays on the ground for the whole year. And then in March or April, we get this this break spring melt, like I described earlier. Unfortunately, with things like climate change um, or just weather events, we get sort of mini melts throughout the winter. And the year before I did this research, we had that kind of winter where we had snow stay on the ground and we had that big flush event. That would have been perfect to answer this question. But unfortunately for this, for the winter that I had, that I did all my field sampling, we had those sort of mini melt. And so we didn't actually see that much of a difference when we went out in the sort of pre-melt, pre-flush and post-flush event. We couldn't actually go during the flush because there's such high levels of water in the river that it's, you know, four degrees that you're going to get pulled away from the water, uh, pulled into the river from the water. So based on our, our sampling and what we were able to do, we actually didn't see much of a difference 
between the pre and post melt event. And that's probably because because these uh, synthetic rubber particles are actually quite heavy. So they probably sink right down to the bottom of the river. So it's very possible that lighter microplastics made of different kinds of plastic might actually be showing us those pulse events with the melt or the rainfall events that we see sort of in rivers throughout the world. Yeah, but where were you sampling in the river? If you're sampling early on, you may see a lot, you may not, you may see sediment, you may see not. If you're sampling later on, maybe very little of that came that far down the river. So I would think that would be a huge factor in what you get. I don't know what you mean by that. Well, if the melt occurs, the fir- where is the first place it goes into the river? Does it go right into the headwater or does it go kind of all along the, right, the length of the river? Yeah. So I should have mentioned that. Yeah. So all of these contaminants aren't coming in through one place. We call them non-point sources because they enter the river through basically anywhere where there's land. It's called runoff. And so there are some areas where you get more runoff entering the river. Things like if you have a stormwater drain that will collect the water off of the road and push it into the river. But overall, you can get these contaminants flowing over the land and into the river at any point along the river, whether it's the rural site, suburban site, or urban site. However, because you have more roads in the urban area, you can make a guess that there's more runoff in those urban areas coming from the roads compared to suburban areas where you've got fewer roads and rural areas where you have even less. So are you testing a bend in the river that is close to roads versus another area of the river that's far away from roads? to see if that's a real effect. Yeah, we went to three different places along the same river, one in a very urban area, one in a suburban area, and one in a rural area. And we went to those three sites sampling water and mud or sediment multiple times throughout the winter. And so the goal was to be able to capture that first flush event, looking for differences in contamination before and after the flush. And like I said, because we didn't have that real flush event for that winter, instead we just looked at how the contamination varied throughout the winter, which it seems that it doesn't change that much when it comes to microplastics. But for something like salt, that's a dissolved ion in the water, it actually really does fluctuate in about a day or so after we have those melt events. So did you sample different points in the river again over time to see if the concentration changes much of the rubber? Yes, exactly. That's what we did. So does it look like the flush is a factor or does it not look like it? Or only when there's roads in close proximity. Does that amplify it? Yeah, so it does look like the proximity to roads and the amount of roads seems to be more informative in terms of telling us how many microplastics or rubber microplastics are found in our river for something like microplastics. For something like salt, which is a dissolved ion, which does actually dissolve in the water, it does, we do really see these enormous peaks in salinity during the spring melt or or these mini flush events throughout the winter. So for example, this is a freshwater river. In When we have these flush events, when the snow melts and all the contaminants rush into the stream, the streams can reach a salinity that's almost equivalent to an ocean. So you can think about what kinds of implications that has for the things that are living in the river, which is sort of the other part of this project, understanding the impacts to the things living in the river. Well, I mean, I do want to talk about the salinity, but the plastic seems to be I guess, more of a new and pervasive problem. So perhaps we can limit more of the analysis to that. What effect do you see the rubber particles have in the river? And again, are they micro-sized? Are they nano-sized? Like what's the particle distribution size? So the particles that we looked at in our river were 10 micrometers and larger. That was mostly due to sampling constraints that we had with with the instruments that we had in the river. So they're definitely micron-sized. 
methods for looking at nanoplastics are still being developed. So it's very, very difficult to be able to actually detect nanoplastics in an environmental sample. There are methods that are out there, but that nanoplastics are kind of the next new thing. We've just gotten a hold on how to look for microplastics, and now we're starting to look for nanoplastics. Okay, so they're on the order of what, one to 10 microns, or you're only able to look at 10 microns and above? 100 microns and above. So about 100 microns up to the largest piece we saw was about two centimeters large. What was the average size in the range that you looked at? Were they a lot of them close to the 100 micron level or a lot of them substantially bigger? Yeah. So most of the microplastics that we were seeing, I would say about one to two thirds of each sample, the microplastics that we found were in the two smallest size fractions. So that would be about 100 to 150 and then 150 to about 250 microns. So this is generally a pattern that we see with microplastics all over the world. Although we can count microplastics of all sizes, we generally start to see exponentially more microplastics when we look in those smaller size ranges. So although we weren't able to actually measure the microplastics that were smaller than 100 microns, it's very likely that there were even more microplastics smaller than the 100 microns that we were able to detect. Well, have you done settling time experiments? I know the salinity changes a lot, so I don't know how it affects the buoyancy of the water, but what if you were to get some you know, rubberized tire particles of 100, 10 microns, maybe even one micron, you knew what was in it, you put it in a sample, you see how long the settling time is, you know, based on different salinities, that might help you model what's going on with those particles in the river. Yeah, totally. There are lots of people that are studying sort of the dynamics of microplastics in different sorts of aquatic environments, whether it's freshwater, marine, river, ocean, lake, you know, sort of the backwash of a current that you have in an ocean. That's not the focus of my research, but that's certainly something that folks are studying. And in addition to that, looking at how things like biofouling affects the buoyancy of microplastics in the aquatic environment. So as bacteria grow on the microplastic, they're likely sinking faster. How does that affect, you know, what access different organisms have to potentially eat them or confuse them with food and things like that? Oh, so biofilms form even on rubber particles in a river? Yeah, biofilms can form on really any type of microplastic. If you think about microplastics, they're really just carbon. And so if you're a bacteria or something like that, you're going to look for something that's going to provide you with carbon or, or a food source. And so that's one of the most interesting things that I've learned about microplastic is that they can be the these sort of substrate for different organisms to be drawn to them and they can either transport organisms to help sort of facilitate invasions of new species or non-native species, or they can contribute to biofilms growing on microplastics. Well, I mean, these are these really even plastics and I would think they would have a lot more cross-linked sulfur compounds than, than carbon chains because it's rubber, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Have you done like metagenomics on the types of bacteria that form films on them? Maybe they're more sulfur-loving or sulfur consuming? I haven't done any work on biofilms at all, actually. There's all these really, really interesting sort of subfields within microplastics, and that would be really interesting to study for sure. One thing I'm learning about the composition of tire rubber is that they're actually very, very different company to company. And because that's proprietary information, it's actually really hard to figure out exactly what goes into a tire rubber particle. And a tire itself is, is comprised of many, many layers all made of different materials with different additives and stabilizers and things like that. And so even if I was to understand what one kind of one piece of tire rubber was made of, it's likely that the next one would be somewhat different until those companies tell us what are in them. Or if we figure it out for ourselves, we won't be able to know that yet. 
which is not something I've looked into for my research. Oh, but someone could probably do gas chromatography and see, you know, they took like uh, the major brands, let's say, and, uh, you know, cut a little piece off of it and maybe dissolved it. Again, did some uh, gas chromatography. They might be able to see the predominant compounds in it and kind of guess at what's in there, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. We we actually used to have someone in our lab, Tobwe. She's a, a researcher and analytical chemist who studies, who does non-target analysis. And one of the things that she did, did was looking for, was using TIE to look at the different compounds in tire particle leachate. And again, she looked at different kinds of tire particles. For her, it was with the goal of figuring out which compound was toxic to the fish that she had exposed to this tire particle leachate. But again, there are so many subfields in microplastics, and that's just one that there are certainly certainly people working on. Yeah. So, all right, I guess going to what's going to be the progression of your research? You're trying to figure out, again, you know, theorizing that these uh, these melt times are responsible for a large percentage of the, of the rubber that's in the rivers. So you're trying to establish whether that's the case, or like, what's the focus of the research right now? The focus of that project is understanding how these flushes of contaminants impact the things that are living in the rivers. And so measuring the contaminants themselves is one component. The other component is trying to understand the biological community response. So, you know, benthic macroinvertebrates that live at the bottom of the river, the mussels, the clams, the larval insects, how are they being impacted by these massive fluctuations in salt, as well as exposure to other contaminants like heavy metals and pHs, as well as microplastics. And what's that doing to their overall persistence in these rivers, the structure and functioning of these rivers, and ultimately the sort of longevity of the river as a whole? It sounds like you'd have to get to smaller gradations, though, because I thought biologically about the one to 10 micron size is where, you know, the fish wouldn't be inhaling them. But, uh, you know, the particles may be more likely to get lodged in a gill or, you know, be eaten and then maybe go into, uh, you know, get stuck in the tissue instead of just staying in the digestive system and being passed out if it's large enough. Yeah, that's actually a great segue into another one of my projects where we're actually trying to look at sort of smaller levels of biological organization, trying to understand the genetic mechanisms of the toxicity. So spark notes of the project that I've just described to you is that we do see these influxes of some contaminants like salt when the snow melts in the springtime or when we have these mini melts throughout the winter. And the Invertebrate communities in the rivers are certainly impacted by these stressors in a real environmental setting. Another project that I've been working on is to take the concentrations of these contaminants, tire particles, salt, and heavy metals and pHs, and start to understand expose invertebrates to these contaminants in a controlled setting, so in the lab, trying to understand how they're impacted by these different mixtures of road runoff. And then we're preserving the tissue and doing a gene expression analysis to understand, you know, is it the metal that's causing death in these organisms that we saw in the river? Is it is it the microplastics, the salt, to really get at that sort of mechanistic question of what might be altering these urban, the biological communities in these urban rivers? Well, how do you know they're being modified? Are you seeing die-offs of certain creatures or the absence of them or do they have tumors or like what What are you observing? We are observing the first two things that you said. So we're observing a die-off of entire taxa. In benthic invertebrate ecology, there are certain taxa that we know that are sensitive to contamination. So for example, mayflies that a lot of fisher people really like are quite sensitive to contaminants like the ones that I was studying and likely are sensitive to some of the chemicals that are in the tire particle leachate that we're exposing them to. And we don't see any mayflies in our urban site where there's lots of tire particles. 
wouldn't they be feeding on lighter particles then that aerosolize out of the water instead of heavy ones that drop down to the bottom? Yeah, it's not to say that they're eating the tire particles, which is why they're dying off. The chemicals that are in the water, like the salt and the metals and pHs, as well as any chemicals that might be leaching out of those tire wear particles, could be impacting these aquatic invertebrates. So like fish, they have gills. They breathe through their gills, these mayflies, for example. And so the dissolved contaminants in the water coming from the plastic or just coming from the road could be impacting the survival of these mayflies. It is, I will say, also possible that it's something else impacting these mayflies. Urban rivers are highly impacted by a number of human-introduced stressors, road runoff being only one of them. So I don't want to rule out that it could be some other factor that we haven't accounted for, but we didn't see any mayflies in our in our urban site, which tells us that there's high levels of tells us that the high levels of contamination that we're seeing could be correlated with the lack of mayflies and other sensitive taxa that we failed to detect in our urban site. I mean, I mean it's the salt. If it's their roads, you'd also you'd have not only rubber but coincident higher concentrations of salt. That would go into the river. So maybe it's the, you know, maybe the mayflies are drinking because like, mm-hmm. of the salt instead of the rubber. Yeah, it could be the salt. It could be that there's some sort of synergistic effect of the tire particles as well as the salt. It could be, you know, an additive effect. And that's what that experiment exposing them in the laboratory will hopefully help us answer. Hmm, okay. What would be next after this? I mean, do you still have a long way to go before your PhD defense? And, um, you know, I'm sure it'll be successful, but what's what's next for you? Like, what has this uh, sparked in terms of your own interest in moving forward in research? One thing that I've always known is that I'm really interested and invested in doing research with and for communities. And one thing I really liked about these two projects that I've described to you is that they directly affect the citizens in and around this one river that I studied. And in fact, the lessons could likely be applied to lots of people in Toronto. We've got several watersheds, several rivers throughout the greater Toronto area. And we're not the only urban city that has rivers running through it. So it's been really rewarding to do work that I know is relevant to the sort of everyday community member of a city. My hope is that I can continue to do work like that, whether it's working in my my own local community or with communities internationally. What's the impact to the what community? What's the impact? So, for example, one of the things that we will do once this work is published is we're going to go to decision makers in Toronto. We'll speak to city councillors or MPs, tell them what we found with respect to the contamination in this river and how it's impacting the things living in the river, the benthic macroinvertebrates, and see if we can do some local campaigns for reducing salt use, for example, in our community. That's sort of a, a low-hanging fruit. One of the things that we see throughout Toronto and likely in other cities in southern Ontario or places that use road salt is an overuse of salt. So you see these large crusts of salt on the sidewalks, and that's because people are afraid that if they undersalt, they're going to end up with ice on their sidewalks and someone's going to slip and fall and, and sue them, right? And so that's one sort of obvious way that we plan to take our research, go to decision makers in Toronto and try and make change within our community. Well, is there an alternative to salt instead of just saying reduce it, which may not work because people might need it? So one of the things that we know works when it comes to road salt is rather than using the sort of rock salt that you, you know, looks like kosher salt that you might use when you're cooking, 
is to use a brine. So dissolve the salt in a water and then spray the water on the surface that you like. Just as effective as using rock salt, you'll use less salt and which is ultimately what we want, less use of salt, because you're right, it's not necessarily possible for us to halt salt use altogether. So best to figure out a way to use it so that the impacts to the environment are lessened. There have been other solution or other alternatives to salt, road salt that have been proposed. I don't even want to mention them because I know that uh, some of them have actually been shown to be worse than salt, even though they're sort of a bio alternative. So it seems, based on what I know, that grinding seems to be the best solution for now. And of course, encouraging people to shovel their driveways before they actually apply anything to their sidewalks or their or their driveways. But why why is brine better? Because it just it, it can only have a certain level of salt before it's it's just more effective at a lower concentration of salt. Or what's the reason? Exactly, you use less salt to have the same impact in terms of melting the salt and maintaining that level of sidewalk safety or parking lot safety. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. So, hmm. interesting. I guess last question, the, the, the cars and the tires themselves, I know you can't study everything, but is anyone studying how weather conditions affect the wear pattern or the degree of wear on tires? And maybe you could see certain road features for some reason tend to provide, you know, just tend to cause a lot of wear. And maybe if the road was taken care of better or the road was reshaped somehow in certain spots that, uh, that alone may reduce the amount of uh, you know tires abrading off. That's a great question. To my knowledge, uh, no one is looking at road conditions and how that affects the amount of tire particles. I know that there are people who are looking at the age of tires and how the amount of abrasion or the amount of microplastics that are coming off of the tires based on the tire's age, but not that I know of when it comes to road conditions. It's a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, I would guess the uh, the rubber would get would become embrittled the colder it is, and then if you go over a, a road feature like a bump or I don't know the road has been graded or whatever it is or a certain turn that uh, you know maybe causes a little bit of skidding on embrittled rubber maybe that's what preferentially flakes it off mm-hmm. or so. But again, it's probably a whole other area of study that uh, who can who can do everything that's you know, possible. Yeah, you can't do any, you can't do everything, but that's one of the wonderful things about studying plastic pollution is that there's kind of a niche for everyone, pun intended. If you're an engineer, if you're a chemist, mm. if you're an artist, if you're an ecologist, there's a, there's a place within the world of plastic pollution that you can make an impact, which I think is really cool and somewhat unique about the field as a whole. Yeah. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? They can go to my website, rachelkgiles.com, just the letter K, not anything else. Or you can check out my Twitter. It's also Rachel K. Giles as well. But definitely my website is the best place to find me. Okay. And uh, just for listeners, so they know it's a, it's a Friday night late for Rachel, but she still came for this podcast. So thank you very much for coming, Rachel, and making the time, even though it's a late hour. And uh, I appreciate all your information. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun to chat about plastic pollution. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.